I'm Ben Sean. You're listening to Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. I apologize that it's taken me so long to get this next episode out, but as I speak, we're sitting here at Baja Naval, a marina in Ensenada, Mexico, aboard our sailboat Dovka. We've been traveling down the coast, and we are now officially temporary residents of Mexico, the four of us on board, my wife and my children and I, and we will be heading south the next weather window we get, trying to get to warmer weather, uh, probably down, hopping down towards Cabo and then over to Puerto Vallarta when we can. But up next, a conversation with Scott Rossette and Ashley Dremel, who met sailing in San Francisco Bay in 2016. Five years later, they sailed out under the Golden Gate Bridge and together aboard their Pearson 365 named Azmuth, took a left turn and began an estimated 8,000-mile voyage from San Francisco Bay all the way to the Chesapeake Bay, where Scott actually grew up. Along the way, they adopted a cat, transited the Panama Canal, fixed a broken through-hole that was gushing water in, and learned a whole lot along the way. I talked to them back in the fall before we left on our trip, and learned all about what they had encountered and learned along the way. So let's jump right in. I'm Ashley Gremmel. I'm a sailor, maker, and climate change mitigator, now based in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, I'm Scott Reset, just uh, just a guy, I guess. Uh, <laughs> now based in Richmond. I grew up here and spent almost 10 years in the San Francisco Bay. And you guys are in Richmond because you sailed there from San Francisco. That's right. Um, aboard our Pearson 365, which is a 36 foot and five inch sloop. I always thought it was for half a foot, but it's actually five inches. So um, <laughs> get that straight. Yeah, called Azimuth. We bought it in 2016, lived aboard in the Bay Area for five or six years, and then took off on a big adventure. Let's back up. How did this idea come to be? I grew up around here, like I said, going to a summer camp on a nearby uh, freshwater reservoir. And it was a sailing camp in the summer, and it taught FJs and lasers. And I had a Hobie 16 in high school. That was probably the most of it until I moved out to San Francisco. And Gosh, the, the peninsula is surrounded on three sides by water. There's tons of opportunities for sailing bigger boats, boats with keels. I kind of just took it and ran. It's a lot of fun. It's unlike another sport in that it's cooperative, team-based, uh, and you're using the wind to go places, which I think it tickles my brain in a unique way. How did you get into sailing here in San Francisco? What were your first steps? Maybe backwards from most, I bought a smaller boat an Ericsson 34 with a friend and we had not sailed boats of that size before. So it was a bit of a crash course on navigation and draft and uh, tides and currents, all things that you don't have on a freshwater lake. 
through that, I was able to meet people that then introduced me to racing opportunities, uh, especially out of the Oakland Estuary um, and Ensignal Yacht Club and started doing Wednesday nights and Friday nights. And that became Wednesday, Friday, Saturday mm -hmm. and Sunday. And that became offshore season and OYRA. And it just it, as much as you have room for it, there's there's opportunities. And Ashley, had you done any sailing growing up? No, um, I grew up in Michigan, so I could swim before I could walk. Um, so many lakes up there, even great ones, as you can yeah. imagine. In high school, my dad got a little electric motor bass boat that we had on a small lake pond kind of situation. And I loved um, just tooling around out there and fishing and everything. But I'd never been on a sailboat, as far as I can recall, until the day that a friend invited me to accompany her on a sailing date, and it happened to be on Scott's old boat. I was sort of hook, line, and sinker, and we joked that I never got off the boat. Uh, <laughs> although we then uh, switched to Azimuth a few years later and got into the racing scene. I really came into it when um, a friend of mine invited me to race on a Moore 24, and going around on the bay um, on the rails of one of those was, or, sorry, not a Moore 24, a Mel just to start, um, and then we raced a Moore together for um an offshore season it's just so much fun and uh i think building that racing capacity helped us eventually come up with this adventure the idea to go cruising and i want to mm. talk about your your trip more in detail but um first the idea did that come before you purchased yeah. yes so kind of um from the start, uh, Scott had been living on a boat that he co-owned with a friend. So when I met him, he was already living aboard and um, got to see that sort of lifestyle, I guess you'd say. Um, Whereabouts in, were you living aboard, Scott? Just out of curiosity. Here. I was in Bolina Bay in Alameda. Yeah. Okay. And I will say that the Ericsson 34 was built. It was an IOR racer cruiser. It had the typical pinched bow and stern and you know, it was it was our first boat of that capacity, but spending a few years on it highlighted features of, you know, the quote unquote next boat that we were looking for. Mm -hmm. Things like stability and size and allocation of space. So even before we had the boat, we had an idea of what, you know, a comfortable, seaworthy boat that would enable certain amounts of traveling and, and relative confidence and, and comfort. Yeah, so started, I mean, fell hard for reading cruising books, you know, Lynn and Larry and um, learning as much as I really could about it. And um, I remember uh, being in my apartment in the Mission District in San Francisco and starting to crunch the numbers of how much we were wasting on rent uh, and having him pay slip fees when we could just jump into it. And um, so we thought, well, if we know we want to go somewhere on a boat, the first step is to buy a boat or to start looking for them. Really just jumped in. I remember hemming and hawing a little bit and talking to my dad of all people um, and got a big thumbs up from him saying, hey, this is a $30,000 decision. If it's awful, that boat has already sort of depreciated as much as it's going to. So why not give it a try? Um, so after knowing each other for a year and a half, we... Uh, you know, signed a boat contract. Uh, that was <laughs> right. Did you get a there. lot of boats or was Azimuth kind of the there and you went for it? 
I looked at a lot of boats online, you know, shopping yeah. from the monitor in the beginning and I'm always doing that, whether I'm in the market or not. <laughs> I have <laughs> sailboat so data fun. pulled up, several different <laughs> windows comparing numbers and uh, Yacht World and a lot of walking the docks in between these races and saying, hey, what about that? Oh, that's, you know, that's interesting. That would be nice, this, that, and the other. I think we only looked at two or three boats more seriously. Uh, we had considered the Islander 36. Um, yeah, there are a lot of them around here. Mm -hmm. there's a lot uh there's a big fleet in racing in case we wanted to do that i forget his full name but zachary who had circumnavigated at age 18 and islander 36 mm -hmm. shows that it had some capacity for cruising um the tartan 34 we looked pretty strongly at tartan 34s i would like the size of them we like the uh, uh keel centerboard arrangement to allow a shallow draft but also better upwind performance nice boats yeah and then Gosh, I don't know how we found the Pearson 365, but we did. And uh, it just checked so many of the boxes that we were considering. And lo and behold, there was one for sale in Emeryville at around our price range. So that's where it all started. That's great. So Scott had just done a pack cup return trip on an Express 37 uh -huh. and pounded up wind for a few yeah, thousand miles. Boat. Yeah. <laughs> and we had been really seriously talking about buying a boat right before he left. And then, um, you know, go down to sat phone communications while he's offshore, or like little to none. And I'm wondering, is he going to still like sailing? Yeah. And uh, I think he was back for two days, maybe less when we saw the listing. We both kept pulling it up. So I just went and called the broker and we were out there a few days later and um, our poker faces were awful. And <laughs> fortunately, the broker is still um helped us get a good deal on it and uh yeah that was that yeah right how much of a fixer opera was she not much actually of course we found issues through normal use but uh we got a survey done um by rick whiting for oh, engine know, rick. yeah yeah he's great. yeah he's great it worked out great everything you know did a haul and hang at kkmi uh the, no moisture issues. I think the two major issues were that the battery charger needed to be replaced along with the batteries. It needed a new anchor chain and several things like a sump pump, just thing grab and go, kind of pull out and replace things. Um, but not the engine was great. It has its original Westerbeek 40 that passed the um, the engine survey no problem. And I was good, pretty good to go. Yeah, it was livable right away. I mean, the interior was in really good shape. So we moved aboard um, like a week after buying it. Um, it wasn't cruise ready by any means. Um, no. And we didn't go into it with a refit in mind. I know that's kind of a common pathway of I'm going to buy this boat. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to go. But um, we still wanted to be in the Bay Area for a while, but just figured let's start saving money um, and getting used to it. And then before we left uh, for our trip, we realized that we had replaced <laughs> almost every system or had our hands in it in some way. So yeah. it was a very uh, slow refit, which I think they tend to be, but um, it was nice that we didn't have, you know, a year timeline or something like that in mind. Did you guys, so you lived aboard her in the mm -hmm. Bay. Did you cruise her around the Bay a bit before you set off? 
yeah oh, yeah tons as we much were as out, possible like every weekend practically um that's we were great big, yeah um we were big members of the washed up yacht club if you've ever heard of that group um mm-hmm. and we created a live aboard race to help merge the sort of cruising and racing um mindsets i suppose um but yeah i mean getting out on the bay is just one of the one of the best things and if you've already got the boat it's not that expensive mm-hmm. um so yeah really enjoyed that yeah that's cool what were some of your favorite places to hang out in the bay well with the washer Yacht club we had a almost every monthly raft up event at treasure island in clipper cove, clipper cove. Uh, I hearing about and that. so that was just gosh i have more appreciation for that now having drop hook and hundreds of anchorages now at how easy relatively it is to get from anywhere in the bay it's it's very still it's protected and the shore access is great as long as you can get in and out at high tide <laughs> at the right time yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah we only drop well on paper four and a half feet but with all our stuff probably five or more um <laughs> we've been to angel island a lot that's the first spot we sailed to and we actually got married on the island um, oh wow I just went there for the first time this past week. What a special place. It's absolutely. And those mooring balls are great practice. Uh, Anyone considering cruising, just (laughs) go do a few drills out there. (laughs) We call it a relationship exercise, the mooring balls. (laughs) It is. It is a relationship exercise. (laughs) That's for sure. We did a few trips up to the Delta. Um, Loved that. And uh, we discovered her... Horseshoe Cove too late. That was our last stop before mm-hmm. uh, we turned left, but um, love it there too. Yeah, that's where I have my boat. Uh, at that little marina that's in there. So, Oh, nice. nice. I love right. that place. Yeah. It's cool. You're, you feel like you are almost directly under the Golden Gate Bridge, which is pretty uh-huh. special. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did speak, speaking of Angel Island, I found the, um, the shallow spots uh, by the morning there um we we ran we had low tide we went hard around and sat for a few minutes <laughs> i guess that's better than a few hours but having grown up in the chesapeake bay mm-hmm. um, i was quite familiar with running aground sure <laughs> no. yeah it's just a matter of when right yeah not it exactly exactly so when did you guys actually depart head out under the bridge and turn south April 30th, 2021. Yeah. Okay. Did the pandemic change your plans at all? I mean, life got turned upside down the year before. I think in a strange way, it helped to focus our plans. Mm. We had been talking about this cruising goal perpetually about three years in the future. And three years is enough time to stay interested, <laughs> but not enough to require immediate action. Man, this sounds so familiar. Yeah, yeah. So it was always three years approximately for probably five or six years. And the pandemic, we both worked jobs, you know, in Oakland or San Francisco or, you know, pre-pandemic, we would commute, we'd bike, take the ferry, something. Uh, so much that not, you know, it wasn't a majority of our time spent on the boat except for to sleep and to rest and on weekends. And when all that turned off, you know, metaphorically and, and realistically, it the boat started feeling more cramped. You know, I was on a Zoom call at a birth or 
Ashley would be at the nav desk on a different Zoom call and <laughs> it just became untenable. And for us, a lot of what made the Bay Area special was the interactions and the social energy and kind of magic that flows from a lot of people being in the same place. Um, and that, you know, it, it went away pretty quickly. And I think that was one of the main catalysts for, you know, actively reducing that three-year runway and starting to, you know, picking a where Chesapeake Bay and a approximate when, you know, spring of 2021. Yeah. So we also, since we we're spending so much time on the boat, found ourselves really crushing through boat projects that had been on the list for a while, or um, we did a few upgrades to make it more livable. We installed a 40 inch um, workstation sink. Oh, yeah. um, we put on an electric toilet and um, we were finding that it helped us kind of cope with all that was going on in the world at that time to just focus really small on the boat and make those changes or do those projects that we'd always been wanting to do. And then it sort of grew and grew to okay, well now this boat is like pretty much ready to go. So what are we waiting for? Um, and for a long time, it was figuring out what the route was. We thought about doing a loop around the Pacific, maybe ending up back in San Francisco. Um, but both of us wanted to be within driving distance to family. There'd been a couple health situations and we're like, you know, nobody's getting younger at this point. So maybe, um, maybe it'd be nice to be a bit closer to that um, community. So um, that's when the Panama Canal started looking a little more attractive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what was your trip down the coast like? And did you spend any time in the Sea of Cortez or did you did you have mm -hmm. to shoot right mm -hmm. by? We moved slowly through California. One, because neither of us are from there and hadn't actually spent time in coastal California but also because Ashley had held on to her job on a remote capacity. Scott left his job at Hornblower in January before we left and he focused more on the final boat projects. Um, we did a marathon three week haul out at Spalding where we were both just going ham on installing through hauls and um, redoing the running rigging and uh, all of those last uh, you know, chain plates, all those things that would keep you up at night if you didn't upgrade them when you're uh, off watch. Yeah. And um, yeah, my manager learned a lot about weather windows and balancing, um, trying to make progress down the coast with work deliverables and uh, was fortunate that that, that flexibility was there. Yeah. 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 It was definitely the coldest part of the whole trip was the California coast. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we were moving through May and June and July and August and um, the fog, you can't hide behind the Dodger. The fog creeps everywhere and it just gets everything cold and damp. And in retrospect, it's nice that we had some cold weather because the rest of the trip was very hot. Uh, yeah, we're on our sixth summer in a row here in Virginia. It's like mid 90s humidity. So yeah. <laughs> even winter in, in South America was hot. So yeah, yeah. so you took a nice leisurely trip down, down the yeah. coast. You, which is nice also because picking the weather windows is so important for that not to be miserable it is it is and yeah. point conception was you know i had we had not crossed on a sailor actually i came up once from marina del rey on a friend's boat but we had not gone south around there and like i said we hadn't 
sailed on our boat further than Monterey. So it was nice mm -hmm. to spend time in Morro Bay and mm -hmm. um, around the around the point in Ventura and Long Beach. And it was just really neat to see that waterfront culture and, and landscapes as we went. Uh, in San Diego, we stopped for probably longer than we planned. But again, in retrospect, what a cool place to be. Um, I took a, a uh, U.S. Coast Guard master's course at the Maritime Institute there. How oh, cool. My captain's license. Um, we adopted a, a cat who has been with us yeah. ever since. And uh, we just kind of used the last few months there to use the chandleries and marine resources to fix the last of the projects uh, before we left the country. We had yeah. also been researching the Pacific weather um, more so and decided to link up with the more traditional timing of um, going down in the fall. So we hooked up with the Baja Haha, which was uh, a lot of fun. And I uh, definitely got to meet a bunch of people really quickly. And then um, those folks, many of them became our buddy boats in the Sea of Cortez. Um, we kicked around there for two or three months, I think, and then crossed over to um, La Cruz and Puerto Vallarta area. I haven't yet sailed in the Sea of Cortez, but I kind of think of that area like the Bahamas for the East Coast. Mm -hmm. People get that far sure. and they love it yeah. so they stay. Rightfully yeah. so. It's a gorgeous yeah. place. It's, you know, it's got tons of beautiful anchorages. Just the scenery is stunning and at times unbelievable. Mm -hmm. um, crystal clear water, great snorkeling, fishing, like it's got it all. Right. I mean, there's plenty to keep you there. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> but you guys pushed on. And we did. In the in the fall, started heading south. <clears throat> Talk about the Panama Canal a little bit. What was that experience like? It's it's quite an ordeal. It's not, and it's not a cheap ordeal. No, it's not a cheap ordeal. Um, we had been, I guess, not veterans at this point, but we had had practice uh, checking in with other countries. By the time we had done Mexico and uh, Honduras and Costa Rica, so Panama. The check-in started, I think, a month out from when we arrived because you have to register with the canal authority and in addition to customs and immigration like other countries. Um, so they they just need to know everything about your boat, size, you know, beam, draft, length, um, MMSI, VHF, like everything about your boat has to be conveyed to them. We worked through an agency because it made it a lot easier. You know, sometimes that makes sense and sometimes it doesn't, but for Panama, it definitely did. And by the time we had gotten there, we had contended with um, the Gulf of Tuanapec and the Papagayos and Putamala to get into Panama, which were kind of our biggest going into it um, yeah. hurdles we thought we would have to jump over. So the canal felt kind of like our last big thing that we hadn't had a taste of yet. Um, one of my favorite parts of the whole experience has actually been the you know, the logistics of the country check-in, check-outs and the canal because really? you get, it, yeah, <laughs> you, you wouldn't think, but I've thought of it kind of like an obstacle course. I mean, you get to interact with so many people you never in your life would have otherwise. Um, and usually in the office, you meet other cruisers or other, you know, mm -hmm. maritime folks, whether it be fishermen coming in or, um, or other trades folks. And um, okay. yeah there's always some kind soul who's helping you out with, uh, with getting things done. And, uh, for me, learning Spanish was a great, uh, or extending my knowledge of Spanish from high school was, um, a big gift of this trip. And it always felt like the country check-in 
and check out was like the final exam of a certain <laughs> country. Um, what a great way to look at because there's so <clears throat> the, 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 so many times you hear people complain about it and they're frustrated and it's just not as efficient as they want it to be. But if you go into it with that attitude, thinking about, oh, the people who are going to help, the people I'm going to meet, it's just... Mm -hmm. And often yeah. the port captain office is the only place with air conditioning. So yeah, so like, <laughs> don't mind hanging out there. Take a couple hours. I'll take up the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You put on your cleanest clothes and you go. Yep. <laughs> it goes a long way. Exactly. Sure. All right. Panama. Let's see. Uh, we arrived in very early April because of April that Fool's Day. April Fool's Day. Um, we had a kind of rough time rounding Punta Mala, which is the west southwest part of the bay of panama there's a averse current at all times of the day because of the way the water fills in and out of the bay mm -hmm. so it's either two and a half knots against you or five knots against you plus 20 knots of wind on the nose and just the canal traffic all congregates there we left uh, banana bay marina in golfito costa rica and we were headed straight for panama city um, because my mom was flying in and we now had a a deadline to get there so that you know she wasn't left alone in Panama while we were trying to get there the first day and a half there was no wind and so we had to motor which was fine but we were using diesel quicker than we expected to and gosh that adverse current coming around Punta Mala it's another point so there's a cape effect the wind compresses you know our boat is fine upwind but it doesn't pinch like a race boat and uh, we have a, a long shallow thin keel situation that started presenting more of a wetted edge for the current every time we'd fall off the wind. So, you know, and, and there's waves. And so as the bow took a wave, we might fall off five or 10 degrees and then the current would catch the keel and just, and knock us down maybe 90 degrees, a hundred degrees. And then because the current is maybe four knots, five knots against us, we start moving backwards. And then it's about building up enough speed, boat speed to come back upwind, build some sort of speed, uh, and then do it again the other way. And so, gosh, I should go look back at our Garmin track of that time. It it probably looks like we were fish tailing. Yeah, we were going one knot for hours and hours and just oh. the relentlessness of, you know, usually if it's on a long passage, the conditions aren't nice. You're um, going faster in heavy air, but this, it felt like we were going seven eight knots but you'd look at the speed over ground and it was just a little bit depressing right <laughs> and eventually we put the engine on forward and full and we get like maybe two and a half knots speed over ground but still your maneuverability was was restricted and that was where the the staging zone for pacific traffic for the panama canal began mm -hmm. and we're looking at the charts at these magenta and white lines where can we be and where can't we be going one to two knots over ground and it's just kind of a comedy of factors all at once. Um, yeah. yeah, people say in that area, it's sort of might is right. So even though you're a sailing vessel, you really don't want to be in the way of anybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. Suffice to yeah. say, we got in there, we had less than a quarter of a tank. and um, It was just powering through with the motor and going at two knots and finally making it. Yep. yep. Yeah, I mean, we were... That's, yeah, that was the main strategy. We only have a 22 gallon fuel tank because um, 
a previous owner took out uh was it a steel tank yeah the and... boats were built with steel tanks and they were prone to rust so mm. so they could only get a smaller one um back in there so trying to do the math around how much do we want to burn going so slow and then potentially run out and be totally unmaneuverable <laughs> right in the Panama canal zone That's um crazy but man when we actually arrived and we saw panama city it was um kind of a throwback to sailing around the San Francisco Bay, just with that big shipping traffic and seeing the biggest buildings we'd seen in a long time too, probably since Acapulco. It's just a really neat experience to be doing some urban sailing again. Mm-hmm. Well, the city has an enormous skyline. Took me by surprise. It's got hundreds of skyscrapers, modern architecture, and it comes up from the Pacific side, kind of out of the, the marine layer. And it was, wow, you know. I didn't know what to expect, but it wasn't this. This is amazing. Yeah. And then transiting the canal, you need to have people on board. Yeah. Yeah. We had our friends, um, Ulrich and Liz, who um, own a property in Bocas del Toro, but they're local to the Bay. Um, They happened to be flying in and uh, had always wanted to go through the canal. So we had them on board. They were slinging some really great food for the crew. And then... We had two line handlers that we hired through the agent, uh, as well as the uh, sort of radio operator assigned by the canal authority. So it was a pretty packed boat, but just an awesome day. It was like a group project and a moving party. And gosh, the Panama Canal is like a wonder of the world, but it's also a machine and you can use it for a function. It's like if the pyramids split and let you go, it's just crazy. It was so nuts. Yeah, we were off the dock at 3.30 in the morning, um, you know, with all of the extra line and big fenders that uh, got dropped off by the agent. And watching the sun come up as you're going through the holding area for the first lock was a really neat experience. We looked out. We had good weather the whole way. It might have rained for a half an hour when we were going through the lake in the middle. Uh, we had uh, initially asked, you don't find out if you're, you're scheduled to make it in one day or two days until the morning of. So we learned that we were scheduled to transit in two days because they didn't think that they would have traffic to Paris with to go through the locks in one day. Um, and sure enough, both the first sets of locks, actually in the first set of locks, a starboard aft cleat that we were using to facilitate the lines, it just, the aluminum sheared and it snapped off. <laughs> it, because the boat uh, there's a big ship in front of us they lock you with another boat and when they had hit idle forward it sent the biggest prop wash <laughs> i've ever been in straight back and so we were still tied to the to lock walls at that point and i had the engine again and forward just trying to keep us in one spot but uh, i was too much for the cleat and uh you know after we we had it we got it wrapped around a winch and i looked back and the cleat was still tied onto the rope it was just like 30 feet in the air and it was kind of a super surreal comedy when we took it back in we were able to take it off and put it inside i joked that we're going to turn it into a christmas ornament or something (laughs) but you know the rest go ahead where'd you tie off to then on the uh on the boat you were able to route the line straight to a cockpit winch yeah we quickly uninstalled our side solar panel so that that wouldn't get ripped off if it happened again and yeah i think we tied it on top of the dodger or something like that but we went um up to the lake as the only sailboat or small boat, um, which we were prepared to be rafting up with other folks, but um, I guess it wasn't a very busy day. So we were solo 
And then on the way back down, uh, we were side tied, which everything you read about is like, do not <laughs> go to the, don't side tie to the wall. Um, but because we had had an equipment issue, they wanted us to go like that. Um, and that's where it was great to have hired, um, the line handlers because these guys had been through hundreds of times mm -hmm. and just their calm stability was awesome because, yeah. uh, you know, in the sailing books, they say, do not do this under any circumstances. Next thing we know, we're signing off a waiver and you know, yeah. signing away our lives. Um, but Santiago and Guti were like, it's going to be fine. Be Don't fine, worry. Yeah. Um, although it was a bit spooky to, to see the rigs so close to uh, yeah, the spreaders, like, you know, a foot and a half away from the lock wall dropping and you go up, you know, 83 feet or so, and you go down just about as far and uh, it's kind of nerve wracking, but to take a step back, we got to side tie because there was an opportunity to finish our transit in one day instead of two. And mm -hmm. that was very, very preferred for us. So you guys made it through the canal. Ashley, you wrote an article for Lab 238 about deciding which way to go through the Caribbean. Sure. Yeah. Um, so the Pacific coastline was all pretty straightforward. You're just, you know, going right along it. But the Caribbean was a question mark for us on how we would do that. Probably the biggest curveball of our trip was that we ended up staying in Bocas del Toro for hurricane season. Um, some friends of ours were on a property there and we became their handy people at their eco retreat called Coco Vivo. It was nice to slow the pace. We'd been really... Um, crushing it. To, we called it a delivery cruise because we, you know, had time to have fun, but we were also kind of taking every weather window that um, was thrown at us. So four or five months there. Mm -hmm. um, at that point, we started talking with Chris Parker. We'd been um, scratching our heads about which way um, to cross the Caribbean. And we'd heard great things from uh, local folks who'd worked with Chris Parker and his company out of Florida. Um, and we got his advice on um, hanging out in Panama a little bit longer. So we went to the San Blas. We had a couple of friends fly in and just had some great island hopping times. Another strong recommendation. <laughs> what a cool place to be. San yeah. Blas is just like dream, dreamy landscapes, the whitest beaches, the clearest waters, you know, 30 feet of visibility. Um, and the culture of the people in Panama, it's a semi-autonomous region within Panama. So you have to check in to the San Blas, you know, despite having checked into Panama, um, grocery shopping happened when little pangas would come tie up next to your boat and ask if you wanted fruit or lobsters or whatever was fresh. And, uh, there's just hundreds, I think there's 360 islands and all of them are visitable. I think you could probably spend decades there and never get bored yeah That's it'd be awesome. worth a canal trip even just to spend the rest of your life in panama yeah. we could talk to you about it for hours we just loved every every part of it um but eventually the uh christmas trade winds as they call them because they set in around the end of december um were looming and we took uh a window to get over to cartagena colombia uh, make some eastward progress to make our eventual trek um, north a bit easier. And that was probably the roughest ride of the trip. Um, mm. The weather window was suitable, but not by any means ideal. So we had um, medium-sized uh, 
short period waves and just instantly as soon as we left the marina um we were like pounding pounding into the waves um both of us got seasick which was kind of a rarity at that point in the trip um we had a hose come off of a through haul we i woke up from my watch with water above the floorboards um and so we had to fix that we um, have bilge pumps we have we had double hose clamp like we followed everything to the book yeah. but just a another combination of errors or gosh the entropy or salt that salty air something the yeah. float switch was not working so the bilge pump wasn't auto pumping and that at rough. that point it was probably seven thousand miles in or six thousand or something like that so things had just had their chance to jiggle around despite our best attempts to hold the ship it's together. always a combination of things isn't it so which through hallway yeah. with the hose came off one of yeah. our if not our least favorite feature of the the pearson 365 is that they well to accommodate three or four inch bulwarks all around the boat which is great for security uh the deck drains travel inside the bulwarks through one and eighth inch hoses inside the boat and then exit at waterline through halls, um, two on the starboard side, two on the port side, um, which is tough because if you're getting water from rain or over the, the sides from, from waves, it go it travels inside the boat before, any, before exiting at the waterline. Yeah. I've got so, the same thing. Okay. Yeah. And those are above waterline through halls, except for when you're healed over. When you're healed over, you're not above. <laughs> And we had just replaced all the through halls and through all assemblies and added backing plates. And so we were really confident in that. But uh, like I said, one of the double hose clamps, the the hose just came off at the water line and we were healed over on that side and uh, water was coming in. So we hove to and we figured out which one of them was leaking after, you know, the classic tasting the water to see which mm-hmm. direction. <laughs> um, and it was um, in this the through hall is behind this cabinet. So I'm up to my waist trying to get the hose back on there uh, while trying not to toss my cookies into the cupboard too. Really not the spot you want to be. Um, but then a wooden bung was the uh, savior of the day. So, you know, as old fashioned as, as it is, if you don't have one of those or multiples, yeah, get them, get them before you yeah. go out again. Cause um I was able to just pound it in place with a rolling pin that was in the cupboard yeah. and uh, kind of say, okay, yeah. I'm done with it. No and uh, yeah, then Scott could go off watch. Again, one of our first sails in the Caribbean and the, the sh- it was probably seven to nine foot waves at seven to nine seconds. So the short period was just awful. Yeah, um, upwind and um, not, the, not the comfiest. So then we had, I think, another day or two um, to get to some islands off Columbia and kind of work our way um, at that time of year, or perhaps always there's pretty big breeze that comes up in the afternoon. Um, so you don't want to be out there with the trade winds brushing around um, right on your nose. So then we made it to Columbia and settled in for the winter. We got to hang out with the Yahtzee crew um uh-huh. Scott works for a good old boat magazine so he got to meet his first coworker in person <laughs> um hang with those guys for a little bit I had the, the Yahtzee on the on the show a, a while back that was great um that's right yep so then you guys 
head north. Um, I don't, I, you know, I don't want to make this travelogue where we go through every little bit. But what was it like going back up north towards home, towards mm. where you grew up sailing, Scott? Good. You know, up until that point, we were moving south, which is further from both San Francisco and our destination. So even though we were making progress on the route, we were moving further away. It was getting more remote. There were less and less people. And, it, you know, this is the first time we've ever done something like this. So every step of the way was, you know, I'm not going to lie. It was full of guessing or second or third or fourth guessing at times. And um, it felt good mentally to be going north on the chart plotter, you know, to say, hey, the place we're trying to end up is in this direction and we're making progress towards that. Yeah. Um, at the same time, we started seeing boats with calling ports that we had heard of again. Um, many people from the United States. From Colombia, we headed toward the Yucatan Peninsula. We spent about a month in um, Isla Mujeres before crossing into Florida. And when we landed in Florida, it was completely surreal. It, it sounds cheesy, but, you know, I got down and, and put my hand on U.S. soil for the first time in years. Um, and it, it was it was overwhelming. It was amazing. That's cool. Nice to be yeah. home. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then we had a kind of, oh, we're back sort of feeling we made it. And then um, also realizing that there was still a fairly long sailing trip of a thousand <laughs> miles or so left um, from the Keys. And um you know, wet, squirrely spring weather to contend with on the East Coast. So yeah. we um, were pretty good at picking weather windows at that point and threading the needle between um, tornadoes in Palm Beach that hit just after we had gotten a bit north of there um, and big thunderstorms. Um, we had a great passage up to Charleston. It was just 24 hours and we both spent the whole time um in the cockpit and kind of threw the watch schedule to the wind um, and just really nice sailing conditions there. And then but you get those beautiful sailing conditions. You just want to be up there all the time. Yeah, yeah exactly. Absolutely. We were still in the Gulf stream. So we caught our last uh, Mahi Mahi and um, it's just the blue water. It was perfect. It was oh. for sure sailing. We usually do four hours on four hours off and we, um, offset it a little bit. So I come on at 3 a.m. to 7 and it sort of goes, you know, four by four from there. Um, and so it was neat to see different parts of the day than we were so used to throughout the trip. Uh -huh. That schedule had just really locked in and worked for us. But um, I think on that final passage of the ocean, we realized how much of the trip we'd spent alone um, yeah. <laughs> being on watch and um even just the deep isolation of kind of an extended COVID time. Um, it was neat to be moving closer to family and friends. And we got to stop in on some aunts and uncles and um, friends in North Carolina. So it was, everything was starting to get more and more familiar as we got um, further North. And we actually ended at latitude uh, 37 as well. So it was a fairly symmetrical route. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Down and up, a big U. Exactly. Right. Um, yeah, and then we bopped into the intercoastal waterway um, in Southport, Southport North Carolina, uh, sort of near Wilmington. 
And what a treasure, what an yeah. amazing piece of infrastructure that they maintain. Oh my gosh. And did you guys do the dismal swamp? Yes. Another complete surprise. Love uh, that. The- beautiful. You know, we were motoring the whole time. So we were <laughs> able to, you know, be a little bit more liberal with power usage and stay comfortable. At one point we strung a hammock up between the, the frilled jib and the mast and we'd take turns just basically <laughs> being like delivered through the great dismal swamp. <laughs> you know, glassy water and, and swamp birds and trees on, on a hammock on basically a magic carpet. It was, it was fantastic. That's awesome. Yeah. So after doing this trip, what, what, what were the biggest surprises? What didn't you expect um, when you set out? Um, let's see. I think the biggest constant was being feeling really immersed in nature and having a, a slower pace to your days. Um, I think we ex- we expected that, but also to move about at a kind of max speed of six miles an hour for such a long time um, does something. It kind of softens your mentality or something like that. Um, I think the relentlessness of a journey like this um has increased our capacity as individuals and as a couple to be able to kind of roll with uncertainty um and to be able to always identify a next step even if the next step is take a nap and we'll think about it then or um more often you know just try working at the problem at hand, whether it be how are we going to make it from point A to point B, or how are we going to um, repair the engine this time, or how are we going to um, get access to whatever you know resource we needed, food, water, random electrical bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. What would you say? Gosh, so many. I think something that I was too focused on or probably just the right amount of focused on before we left was getting the mode perfect of following ABYC regulations or using the proper marine grade so-and-so. And that is important. And you have to make sure that the work you're doing is sound and and time tested, but you just don't have the ability to do that so many other places in the world that, and people, people do it anyways. People kind of dropping the perfectionism that I had had to get to that point and realizing that there will be somebody available to help you out, or if not somebody there, they might know somebody that could help you source that one thing. And again, I I don't want to go on record saying not to follow the rules and do it your own way, but um, I had gotten caught up in making sure things were perfect such that maybe we didn't just go to the next place or take the next step. And uh, realizing that you don't have to have everything to keep going that, you know, most of it you'll either learn or fill as you go. It was really empowering. And at the same time helped a sort of fear that I had at times and anxiety that I didn't know if I could do everything else that had to get done, but that I only had to figure out how to get to the next step. Like San Francisco, can we sail to Monterey? Yes. And from Monterey, can we sail up to Morro Bay? Yes. And each step, once you start taking those steps, you build a sort of momentum that informed and and gave power to the rest of the trip Mm -hmm. 
God, I can't tell you how reassuring it is to hear that. Even though I know it intellectually, I'm preparing to try and shove off in October. Yeah. To know that, yeah. Okay. <laughs> One step at a time. That's right. Yeah. And there's, I mean, that long range planning is, it's, uh, it was really helpful for us to have a, an end destination in mind. I think, uh, you know, so many folks untie the dock lines and are sort of, I'm going to do it until it's not fun or until I'm out of money. But for us, it really helped to jump in to have mm -hmm. a little bit more of a concrete idea of what we were trying to do out there. Um, yeah. So yeah. ask a, what's next question? And, uh, <laughs> rest. Rest. Air conditioning. <laughs> yeah, we're figuring that out. Um, I mean, our aim was to get the boat over to the Chesapeake because we wanted to um, live in a spot where we could um, afford a place on land and continue to sail Asmuth, um, you know, on weekends and also, you know, hopefully up to Maine or out to Bermuda or, um, you know, another kind of sabbatical someday, perhaps. Um, but yeah, we're getting back into the land of paid work instead of just the uh, grueling unpaid work of the long sailing trip. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we're open to ideas as well. So. Well, I wish you the best both, Ashley and Scott, as you make that transition back to a well, I guess it's not fully land life. You have your boat there. Absolutely. You're sailing still. But um, as you make the transition, and um, I was hoping to come back east for my annual trip for the boat show in November, uh -huh. but I'm going to be pushing off on my own adventure, so I'm not going to make it. So I won't connect with you guys on the East Coast then, but you know, I still have a lot of connections. So I hope that we can catch up in person one of these days. We would love that. Yeah, that would be great. And good luck on the final push. Let us know if we can help in any way. Yeah. Thank yep. you. That's it for this week's show. I'm your host, Ben Shaw. Thanks for listening. You can always reach me on Instagram at OutTheGateSailing or via email at OutTheGateSailing at gmail.com. And if you want to follow along with our current trip aboard Dovka, you can do so at Dovka.com or also via Instagram where I'm posting more frequently at SVDovka. Until next time, smooth sailing.